This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to value listeners, if you're looking for the most egregious profiteering and fleecing of American consumers in healthcare, there's no better example than that of the giant industry of middlemen called pharmacy benefit managers, PBMs for short, that are systematically gouging American businesses. Most people are familiar with the few bad actors in the pharmaceutical industry. For example, we think of the infamous pharma bro, Martin Scarelli, that jacked up the price of his company's drugs, and then smirked his way through subsequent court proceedings. However, the inner workings of the drug pricing game fostered by the non-transparent PBM system that victimizes healthcare consumers is actually a far worse scenario that's a million times bigger and more expensive than the games of the pharma bad actors. PBMs who collectively manage pharmacy benefits for 266 million Americans routinely fleece American businesses using clever shell games that are the absolute antithesis of value-based care. But there's good news. There is an upstart PBM, Capital RX, that provides a more transparent, sustainable, consumer-centric, and ethical model in the administration of pharmacy benefits. Joining us this week is A.J. Loyakino, the CEO and co-founder of Capital RX. AJ's company is the fastest growing healthcare company in the country, serving more than 1 million lives across its customer base of payer entities, employers, unions, health systems, and municipalities. It grew by 400% in 2020, and it doubled in size in 2021. Capital RX are the good guys in the PBM industry. They offer a pharmacy benefit spending platform that links providers, patients, pharmacies, and plans to bring cost-effective care to employers and their workforce. On average, Capital RX saves its clients 27% on drug costs, mainly by refusing to use the industry standard model for drug costs, which is the average wholesale price. As a result, Capital RX has achieved a 96 NPS score compared to the industry average of 14 in healthcare. AJ is truly a visionary leader in the health value movement, and he was recently named an Entrepreneur of the Year 2022 New York Award finalist by Ernst & Young. We're so excited to have AJ on the podcast this week. Under AJ's leadership, Capital RX is a company out there modernizing our healthcare infrastructure to reduce costs and deliver superior care. And they have the highest satisfaction scores in, in the industry. Put on your seatbelt. AJ is going to provide you, the listener, with an unfiltered and opinionated perspective on our need to reimagine pharmacy benefits in our country. Let's now hear from AJ Loacano as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. And if you like this episode, please remember to give us a five-star rating and submit a review on Apple Podcasts. Your support of Race to Value is greatly appreciated. AJ, welcome to the Race to Value. It's awesome to have you on the show this week. Thank you so much for having me, Eric. Well, AJ, I thought we would start our conversation today just by talking about the overall costs of prescription drugs in our country Although the $329 billion spend on prescription drugs is a relatively small part of the $3,800 billion we spend on healthcare in total, prescription drugs are the fastest growing healthcare expenditure and they're consistently outpacing other aspects of health spending. Americans spend on average $1,500 
per person on prescription drugs. And that's just the average. And it's so much more than comparable nations. And the largest single purchaser of drugs is the federal government through the Medicare program. And the Biden administration just passed the Inflation Reduction Act a few days ago, which will purportedly save the federal government an estimated $288 billion over the next decade because Medicare is finally going to be able to negotiate drug prices. And on the commercial side, we're seeing prescription drug costs are just as concerning. We see employers now devoting greater than 30%, some of them, on their health plan's total cost of care on pharma. And this unsustainable pharmaceutical cost trajectory is taking an acute toll on patients because they can't afford to take drugs as they were prescribed. I mean, tragically, we're seeing in the news, I mean, I, I just read something recently that there's patients with diabetes that are dying because they can't afford their insulin because the average retail price has gone up 54% in the last five years. And the societal impacts of high drug costs are innumerable, and it's worsened due to the impact of inflation on consumers, the inelastic demand curve for drugs, and the health inequities that are created in underserved communities and populations of color. In a country where only half of patients with chronic conditions take their medications as prescribed, I mean, we're definitely facing a major health crisis. And AJ, I wanted to ask you if you could frame up the overall problem of the flawed model of prescription drug costs and the opportunity to tackle it with value-based care? And how is this fleecing of America by the pharmaceutical industry and the PBM monopolies contributing to the overall decline of our country in terms of economic impact and population health? Well, I think you, you certainly have summarized that there's a lot of different factors and a lot of different moving parts that lead to a hyper expensive prescription system in the United States. And so, you know, I think to dissect it, you, you kind of have to peel back some different parts and kind of see what's driving some of these things. And have these problems always existed? If they have always been around, why are we becoming more aware of it in the last, you know, it seems like decade, this has become like a critical issue where in the past it was kind of maybe a nagging problem or something that we could manage as a country. And so, you know, I, I think the answer to the question very clearly is, is it's always been here. It's just that the average price per script has slowly increased over time and compounded each year. And that slow compounding effect you know can lead to the doubling or tripling of prescriptions in addition to that the base of the drug price also starts higher than all other nations and so you know we talk about kind of peeling back the different layers you know you could take a point and discuss how the pharmaceutical industry has been structured where many people may argue the United States pays for the world's R&D efforts. And we could talk a little bit about that. And then I think the other area is important is the actual prescription benefit management system and how opaque and inefficient that is and how that compounds the underlying problem of a high starting price. And then I think the third part of it is the compensation that gets layered in on top of these programs, oftentimes by consultants and brokers that reflect or provide an analysis upon the benefits that people can purchase. And then there's a fourth side, you know, if we wanted to go even deeper, which is we haven't even talked any part about the clinical outcomes. You know, we've just talked about price and the economic headwinds, but why do you take medication is either to find a cure or to treat a symptom or a condition. So each of these parts are, are worth looking into. AJ, appreciate that. Uh, let's go ahead and dive into one of those. I'd love to talk more about the the PBM industry, and some people kind of frame it or think about it as a grotesque industry. It's dominated by three large players. We've got CVS, Caremark, Express Scripts, and OptumRx, and they manage 80% of all prescriptions, and they're owned by some of the largest insurers in the country. Unlike CapitalRx, that provides a transparent pricing model and adds value to the overall system, 
The vast majority of other PBMs simply serve as middlemen, and they contribute nothing of tangible value while they're systematically gouging American businesses using clever shell games. And these pharmacy benefit managers are making sick profits from rebates and the billing spread between what they pay a pharmacy for medication and what they invoice an employer or health plan for that same medication. And these windfall profits are realized by taking advantage of the lack of transparency and oversight of the industry. And with PBMs at the center of the U.S. drug supply chain, it begs for scrutiny on how their business practices exacerbate drug pricing dysfunction and excess. I'd love for you to further elaborate on the PBM business model and how their revenue profile compares to those making the drugs and those paying for the drugs. And how do PBMs typically capitalize on arbitrage and spread pricing to increase their margins? And, and finally, with regard to Capital RX, how is your clearinghouse model different in that it provides pricing transparency and stability? Sure. Well, let's start at the beginning, as you suggest, which is what is the job of a PBM? Are they completely worthless? And so I always say, well, it's easy to get to that conclusion because people are so tired of high costs. But the reality is, is a pharmacy benefit manager provides an invaluable role because what is a PBM really doing? It's it's not just collecting money and billing people. If you think about it, it's hundreds of little tasks, many of which that happen in milliseconds. And so if you think about a PBM, they're administrating a benefit on behalf of a payer. A payer could be an employer group, a municipality, a union, whatever it may be. And what does that mean to administrate a plan? Well, there's some sort of plan design. What are the co-pays or deductible? And someone has to keep track of this. Under the Affordable Care Act, there's a unified accumulator. And so the farm pharmacy and the medical carrier need to communicate in a high-level cadence to make sure if someone has hit their out-of-pocket, that that number now is being shared and it will satisfy both pharmacy and medical. There's also eligibility file feeds. People are coming in and out of being service eligible. There's also things like you're processing a drug, the electronic transaction itself. So when you're at the pharmacy, a claim goes off. And also it's the reimbursement to the network. So the pharmacies need to be paid for these transactions. The payers, the employers, or the municipalities, as I described, they must obviously be billed. And this is part of the reimbursement process. There's rebate accounting and rebate payments. There's good old-fashioned print communication, print fulfillment for cards themselves. There's an entire clinical workflow from drug utilization review to make sure that there are quantity limits and checks in place, everything covering from opioids to drug-to-drug -to -drug interactions. There's also prior authorization, which is the workflow for high-cost medication. And this list goes on and on and on. And there are hundreds of little tasks that, to be frank, any employer group could not do without a PBM. So I always want to start the conversation of saying, the middlemen are a problem because of the pricing model they use, not because of the invaluable services that they must provide in order for a single claim to be processed, a pharmacy to be reimbursed, a patient taken care of safely, and obviously the employer billed correctly. These things must occur. Now, let's talk about where it all went wrong. <laughs> and so, you know, where it went wrong was kind of what typically happens with any unregulated industry. And I call the PBM industry unregulated because who is the oversight of the PBM industry? Now, you could say CMS, if it's Medicare or Medicaid, I could certainly appreciate that perspective. But for commercial plans, it's really the Department of Labor because they own ERISA. And so if you think about this, it isn't truly an unregulated industry because the Department of Labor really hasn't done anything to kind of review or provide scrutiny. And if I always give an example is if it's like the financial industry, the Securities Exchange Commission obviously looks in to make sure the appropriate practices are in place in, in finance and investing. We just don't have this. So for 25 years, this industry has exploded. And why has pharmacy benefits exploded? Well, it kind of gave a little bit hint to it is it's the perfect market. I think pharmacy 
in all forms is the greatest industry in the United States. Why? Because it's like nothing else. It is an inelastic demand curve. Patient utilization has held rock steady for 25 plus years. It doesn't budge. And what I mean by that is the same number of people are going to show up each year, year over year. So it's plus or minus 1% on patient utilization. That trend does not budge in aggregate. The second thing is prices seemingly always go up. And so, yes, generic dispenses are probably 90% plus for most payers. But let's be fair, the vast majority, 70 to 80% of spend is brand specialty combined. And brand and specialty drug prices only go up. And so this is creating an increase in price. And then we have the proliferation of specialty drugs. So more utilization on specialty drugs, specialty utilization might be 2%, but it represents 40 to 50% of an employer spend. And this is creating the average price per script going up. So you have inelastic demand curve, inflation on drugs, average cost per drug going up. So if you have the perfect market, you don't innovate, you consolidate. And this is exactly what Dan was saying, is that for 25 years, we saw merger after acquisition, after merger after acquisition, which left us with an oligopoly of three entities that control 80% of the transactions in the United States. And if you really were to follow the money and look at things like rebate aggregation and network leasing, I could probably make an argument that number might be closer to 90% at this point. And I'm not even sure the Trade Commission has gotten their arms around this just yet. But this set the stage for basically an industry that never had to improve. Because think about it. Other industries go through kind of a setback. You know, I don't care if it's real estate or finance. There's like a reset button at one point in their history or multiple times. And they're like, I have to do this more efficiently. We have to get our act together. We have to do this better. This never has occurred in any part of the pharmacy supply chain. And so when you have this perfect market, you just scale with people. You don't have to become more efficient. You have no regulatory oversight. And then you begin to maximize your economics because it's the perfect market now. And the maximization of these economics takes form in a lot of different ways. And it began the moment the PBM industry moved away from a flat fee per service, which is where my company, Capital Rx, operates today. We charge a flat fee per member or per script. We don't make money on fulfillment. I don't believe in marking up the, a prescription. But this is what happened in the PBM industry right at the turn of the century is they said, well, wait a second. What if we said our administrative fee was zero? It's free. There's no more flat fee. And we just tell people we're just going to keep a little bit in between. And it was a genius marketing proposition because I have to be fair, the payers gobbled it up. <laughs> you know, They said free, great. And it wasn't free clearly nothing is. And the amount that the PBM started to take began to compound and grow. And I believe it started to compound and grow for all the reasons that I just touched upon is one, there's no regulatory body over this industry on the commercial side, that's for sure. In addition to that, drug prices began to increase. We saw greater utilization around specialty drugs that would pay even larger margins. Because remember, when you move away from a flat fee structure, you're suddenly making a percent on every prescription transaction. And this point is important because what happens under this model is you, as a PBM that uses this traditional spread pricing model, you make more money the more expensive the drug is. So what do you prefer at the end of the day? Well, clearly you prefer not just expensive brand and specialty drugs, you love the most expensive brand and specialty drugs because they're the ones that are gonna pay the biggest rebate, which you're gonna take a percent off of as well, as well as it will help magnify the optics. Because I always try and point this out is that it's not just a game of purchasing and spread. This is a game of complexity, opacity, and the optics to suggest a payer is saving money when they really aren't. Well, I thought we could go into maybe the need for uh, scrutiny of these of PBM business practices. I mean, it seems like that's long overdue. I mean, these oligopolies and their secretive anti-competitive practices 
are, as you said, increasing prescription drug prices. They're limiting consumer choice and stymieing uh, competition. And you mentioned earlier the FTC scrutiny, and I know the Federal Trade Commission is conducting a probe right now to focus on how vertical integration and lack of transparency in the PBM sector is affecting access and pricing. Additionally, there's been a, a new federal rule that was issued that PBMs must publicly post the rebate amounts that they negotiate with drug makers. And it's unclear whether Congress will be able to complete its work on drug pricing reforms this year or whether a final package is going to incorporate any new reforms around transparency. But policymakers and business leaders, they're definitely expressing this clear interest to examine and change PBM practices based on everything that you said, AJ. And I think it's setting the stage for a lot of reforms that we're going to see washing over this $500 billion industry, and it's going to dramatically alter the way prescription drugs are accessed and paid for in the United States. As a marketplace disruptor, Capital RX seems to be uniquely positioned to increase its market share to capitalize on this corrupt, if you will, PBM landscape through its fixed fee business model and, and the increased transparency that you provide. And I'd love to hear more about that. Can you provide your perspective on the current level of scrutiny that's happening right now in the PBM industry? And given the close proximity between government and big pharma, is the disruption going to have to come from the industry instead? And how does Capital RX's transparent model provide that catalyst for change? Well, look, I applaud the federal government and both the legislative arm as well as the regulatory section, such as FTC, leaning in and taking a look. So we haven't quite learned if the FTC has really taken a position yet one way or another on their current investigation into the PBM industry and vertical integration, but we'll see. I think you've seen the promise of legislation to come as well as some of the current rulings that have been fairly effective. I've always taken the position that innovation needs to lead the way. And so if the government can help, I think that's great. If not, I still think that innovation can win out in the end. So for us, we've taken a position at our organization that we want it to be future-proof, that I genuinely believe the where the world needs to head is that we you shouldn't be able to mark up a prescription as an administrator. You know, if you're a pharmacy, maybe I understand that, you know, you it's part of the supply chain and it acts like any other supply chain. I always say there's a a manufacturer, some sort of wholesaler many times and a retail distribution and I don't care if we're talking about popsicles or sneakers or drugs. It follows the same kind of economic model. It's someone who's the administrator of the health plan and you're making clinical decisions and you're setting a formulary. That's when I feel as if it should be completely illegal for the administrator to make any money on the prescriptions because you create a conflict of interest for some of the points that I made earlier. You know, If you make more money, especially the more expensive the drug is, and you're in a clinical position or a decision-making decision from a formulary and override, that's not appropriate. I think the other part when you kind of look at this compensation is there are some wonderful brokers and consultants out there, but there are some pretty bad ones too that sell bad product because it pays high commission and nobody knows. And we're starting to see this, you know, and this is something that we could talk about, the Consolidated Appropriations Act and it you know, had a, a line that was very impactful and a lot of people overlooked and it went into effect on December 27th of 2021. And it basically amended ERISA section 408B2, which basically says if you're a fiduciary or a payer, that you must understand your costs for healthcare. This includes PBM and medical. And this includes the broker and consultant getting paid in these things. And so I bring this up because it all goes hand in hand with disclosure and oversight. If we ever want to get to the truth of what is a good benefit or what is an aligned offering with the plan and the patient, you need to peel back all of these layers, not just of the PBM pricing, but even all of the people being compensated in this transaction. Let's jump into talking about specialty drugs. You know, this is another challenge that 
with drug pricing is the specialty pharmacy and the whole specialty pharmacy operational model is not really built to serve patients. A fact that becomes crystal clear when you are a patient. Instead, we see the specialty pharmacy model being dedicated to the power struggle for revenue and a captive patient population. And specialty drugs only apply to a small segment of the population, but at a very high cost that can impact employer spending. We know specialty drugs are projected to be a whopping 40 to 50% of prescription drug costs, but only 2% of the transactions. We see some of the largest employers in the U.S. are dropping big bucks on specialty drugs, and they're obviously overpaying and don't need to. No employer or plan should have to pay any more than the pharmacy's acquisition price, plus a reasonable professional fee. But so many employers pay way more than that. And this specialty pharmacy spend extends beyond just the pharmacy spend. Medical claims for pharma drugs that are infused, for example, can be more than half an employer or planned specialty pharmacy spend. And there are a huge side of service differential with hospitals charging more for physician-administrated specialty drugs. In the example of the infused specialty drugs for cancer, hospitals are marking those up two to six times the acquisition cost. How do we get a handle on this out-of-control profiteering on specialty drugs? And, and how are PBMs impacting the specialty drug market in terms of rebate incentives and vertical consolidation between PBM, insurer, and specialty pharmacy? Yeah, I mean, I think the first part is let's go to the genesis here, which is let's just say we have two specialty drugs. One is sold in the United States. One is sold in the UK or Germany or wherever it may be. Obviously, the United States is has the highest starting point. And so you have to ask that question like, well, why? <laughs> like, wait, wait, is it just magically higher? Some of it has to do with the negotiations through a single payer system. Some of it is a little bit more complex because it involves things like the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, which is a group that kind of decides on what's a fair global price for things in pharmaceutical. And so that's the first part. But let's just stick with the current world we live in in the United States and solve it from there, which is let's just say we can't change the starting price of the drug. So how how does a payer make sure that they're paying a fair price, their member is paying a fair price? In addition, someone is receiving the appropriate care and attention. So I always want to start first with the care and attention part. So let's make the assumption that any physician or nurse practitioner is providing the appropriate care and the appropriate decision support. Now, Part of that process, you know, is to make sure someone's getting the right care is the person who's doing the prior authorization. And the person who's doing the prior authorization, does that organization make more money by approving drugs that are more costly or particular drugs in the formulary that are higher cost? And again, they're going to move to because it pays bigger rebates, which again, a traditional PBM or someone under spread pricing is making money on. So my first pause is to say a payer, this is employer group, municipality, it could be the federal government, anyone who's obviously providing a benefit here. The first stop is whoever's managing your benefit, you shouldn't use someone who has that massive conflict of interest. And I speak to payers all the time and they're like, no one's ever brought that to my attention before. Because if you have a traditional model, this is exactly what's happening. That PBM or carrier is making more money on a more expensive drug, and they are in charge of the PA workflow and the clinical decision support. And so step one, make sure you've got an unbiased person that cares about the patient, is providing the appropriate care, and is doing a sound check, both for safety as well as if the drug meets the criteria for the patient to receive it. And again, this could shave 30% of cost to the plan right away. This is something we see all the time where, you know, the typical PBM or carrier will probably have prior authorization approval rates. This is the approval for high cost medication. They sit in the 90% plus of approval. So they're almost approving everything. We sit around 64%, my organization. So people will be like, oh my gosh, you're saying no, and you have a horrible experience for your members. I go, we have the highest customer SAT scores in the industry. I'll go head to head with anyone on this point. We sit at a 71 net promoter score in our call center. I sit at a 96 net promoter score in the client side, the actual payer side. 
And on the payer side, the average net promoter score is 14. And in the call center, the average net promoter score is single digit. So we are blowing away the competition. So my point is, you know what patients want? They want prompt attention. They want information. They want to be communicated. They want reasonable timeframes. And again, if you communicate this information, you can make sure that the patient is having a great experience and already you're reducing costs. So I always say the first layer of cost reduction is should this person be receiving this drug? And you can have a great patient and plan experience and still have sound clinical, unbiased clinical oversight. I want to point that out. So that's the first stop. The second stop in it is our dodgy pricing system in the United States. It's not just acquisition cost. If we could just for a moment say there's one price that still isn't the real price because there's this thing called net price. What's, what's net price? So this isn't as important on obviously generic drugs. Acquisition cost is really what's important, which is what is the pharmacy buying it for? What's a reasonable markup by that pharmacy? And we do have that today using what we call NADAC, National Average Drug Acquisition Cost. This is a pricing benchmark that's maintained by our friends at CMS. It's maintained weekly, and it's reported in, and it's providing acquisition cost. Is it perfect? No. Is it way better than the alternative, which is AWP, Average Wholesale Price? It is light years better. Anyone who defends AWP and AWP pricing has a conflict of interest, because if you look at the data, it's absurd. You should never use it. So we won a study two years ago, and basically what we did is we just demonstrated quite clearly, we took the top 1,200 generic drugs, we followed the price reduction of NADAC over a five-year period, and it was deflation of over 50% if you were using NADAC as your benchmark. If you're using AWP as your benchmark, the price went up plus 1%. And so this was my point, is going back to it is such a complex pricing system, and you could already see it's complex for generics. Do I use AWP? Do I do NADAC? But brand and specialty adds another layer of complexity. And that additional layer of complexity is this concept of net drug prices. And net drug prices comes in a variety of ways. That's a rebate from the manufacturer, but it's more than that. It's manufacturer-derived revenue. So if you were to look at reports that say, on average for brand and specialty drugs, what is the gross, what they start at, if the pharmaceutical industry could keep 100% of what they're basically want to sell their product for versus net, once they send out all their concessions and other things, what is the net that they're really getting in pharma. And that number goes down every year. It goes from 46 to 45 to 44 to 42, and it'll keep going down. And what's fascinating though, is though that the prices for employer groups keeps going up. And you should pause for a second and think about what I just said. So wait, if you're telling me generic drugs deflate every year about 10 to 15%, yes. And I'm saying that brand drugs in list price and specialty drugs in list price go up but their net is going down. That means everyone in the United States, all things being equal on utilization, you should have negative trend. Why don't we? Because the net price never makes it to the plan or the patient in our current US PBM model. Unless you're using a company like Capital Arcs, you're never going to get to the truth. And so this is what is so important is it's so complex net price because it's not just rebates, it's it's price protection, it's clinical access fees, it's whatever else you want to kind of put in a line item that you may tax to create revenue for yourself in a very opaque model, which is very difficult to get to the bottom of. And more importantly, there's additional layers. It's things like coupons or patient assistance. It's 340B pricing. And all of these have a blended rate that's pulling down gross to net. Now, these sound like favorable economic levers that a payer can utilize, but the problem is they can never get to it. They can never fully appreciate it because the people in the middle are conflicted to begin with. From the very start of it, they just want to approve everything at a high price because that's how they make money. And to be fair, they can't change this model. Let me just say, like, it'll be very, very clear, the three entities that we're talking about are all publicly traded. If they were to shift 
fundamentally specialty drug spend and specialty utilization by just 10%, they wouldn't make earnings because at this point, 40 to 50% of their earnings are composed of pharmacy spend. Let's be really clear here. So you have conflict on the front end. They don't really want to have any real sound scrutiny. I mean, certainly not to the level we have is what we're seeing statistically, at least. In addition, the model is hyper complex and opaque. And even though net drug prices are falling, the payer and the patient continue to pay more. So let me pause and answer any of your questions, please. Well, you, you paint a picture that is pretty grim in terms of the cost structure and the pharmacy industry. I'm just blown away that the United States only has 4% of the world's population, but we spend the same amount as the rest of the world combined. And I wanted to ask you just a, another trend that we're seeing and how that plays into the high cost. And that's the competition and consolidation and evolution of the pharmacy market. I mean, over the last couple of decades, we've seen the pharmacy market changed significantly. There's been vertical and horizontal consolidation. New forms of pharmacies have emerged in addition to the independent chain and retail and mail order pharmacies. We've seen services offered by retail increase. We've seen these new potentially disruptive entrants that have emerged in the system. And it's just ridiculous to me, AJ, to think that we have three times as many pharmacies in this country as Starbucks and McDonald's combined. It's just mind-blowing to think about that. And with all the changes that we're seeing in the pharmacy market landscape, there are conflicting theories on the impact of these changes on competition and drug pricing and access to pharmacy services and, and just the future of the industry. But one thing's for sure, the buy side and the sell side is completely inefficient, as you described, because employers can't communicate with the pharmacies at the point of sale contractually. So I wanted to ask you, how does all this growth and consolidation of the pharmacy market impact drug pricing? And is there ever going to be a time when acquisition costs are reported by pharmacies like Walmart and Walgreens and CVS, et cetera? And is there a push right now, perhaps maybe towards mandatory disclosure of NADAC by the federal government to even the playing field? Yeah, well, let's unpack that in pieces. Let's start first kind of thinking about the number of pharmacies in the United States. I think we have the right number, but we might not have the right number in the right locations. And I feel like we're spoiled in some suburban and urban areas where you've got a pharmacy across the street from another pharmacy. But we call these you know, situations in rural locations where you have pharmacy deserts. So you could be in the middle of Montana and your closest pharmacy could be 20 miles away. And that's a problem. And so I always want to start first with, yes, we do have a high number of pharmacies. I just wish we could find a way to create better access. Now, some of that may be satisfied through delivery and other forms of mail order for the rural sections. But, you know, when someone has an acute need, it's very difficult to have to drive that a large distance and maybe you don't have a car and we talk now that it's not fair it's not equitable for that person and how they are accessing medication and so it poses some additional questions but i do want to also focus on what you said which is the consolidation in the industry so the consolidation really was behind the scenes. It's not necessarily retail consolidation. You know, it's funny is the FTC got all worked up, probably it was about six, seven years ago when Walgreens wanted to buy Rite Aid. And I was just laughing to myself and I'm saying, why do they care about Walgreens buying Rite Aid? I mean, what does Rite Aid have? Maybe four or 5% of market share. The, the things that are massive that they just let consolidate are the mail and specialty facilities of the big three. In this case, you know, Cigna, United, and CVS. These are the largest pharmacies in the United States are the mail specialty facilities, at least by drug spend, clearly. And so they, the government, for whatever reason, they didn't understand the problem or perhaps they didn't have the time. But for whatever reason, 
They were so focused on something that I felt really didn't matter, which is Rite Aid being bought by Walgreens. Who cares on some level? I mean, especially if they're paying it for a fair price and they're going to keep the stores. I'm like, okay. The real concern here was the male specialty. Male specialty facilities of the big three dwarf Walgreens. And so I want everyone to understand that as well, which is the vertical consolidation just added to this. And so that's a problem. Now, you also mentioned like, are we ever going to get to the truth on acquisition cost? And I feel like through innovation and transparent organizations like ourselves and others, we're communicating on that price. And the only way to truly communicate on price is if you are not encumbering price. And I make this example all the time is, if you, the entity, in this case, Capital Rx or someone else, if you don't make money on fulfillment, you're a trusted source for price. And what I mean by that is you're not changing price. Capital Rx can't change the price of drugs. All of our customers get the same price. And this is such an important fundamental. And that we're the only PBM I know that abides by this because there's no price variability between our different customers or their patients. And so you are starting to get more people transmitting unencumbered price. Like this is the this is basically my retail contract I am giving to the American public. I don't really care. We often say under our clearinghouse model is that we use this at Capital Rx is we have a single ledger of reconciliation. Like a traditional PBM is multiple books. There's obviously their book on acquisition cost and their contracting. And then there's the book for each client. Like you've got pricing A, you've got pricing B, you've got pricing C. And at our company, we have one ledger. I have the same ledger for our pharmacy reimbursement that we charge our customers. And this makes a huge difference. Now, you, you did ask also about NADAC pricing, which is today a small or percent of pharmacies, like 600 or so, report into it. Now, it is directionally accurate, but it certainly isn't representational of larger buyers, like you mentioned, people like Walmart or CVS or Walgreens that do not. Now, do I ever envision mandatory repricing? I think it should be on some level. And why? Why would I say it should be mandatory? I would say if you are a pharmacy and you are being reimbursed under Medicaid or CARE, I think that if you want to participate in government programs, you should help the government understand price. And I do say that the federal government is our largest and most sophisticated payer, but is oftentimes the most confused payer. And so I've used this example before. The CBO put out a report in February of 2021 that compared net brand drug prices for Medicare, Medicaid, DOD, VA, 340B. And they were all different prices. And they were different by over 150%, the high and the low. And I'm saying, if our federal government can't figure out a fair price, what chance does anyone else have? And so I believe that it would be extremely helpful. And this is an option. You don't have to participate in Medicare, Medicaid government programs. But if you do, you should report in NADAC pricing. I believe at one point we may get there. But even if we don't, I go back to my earlier point of innovation and organizations like ourselves that are willing to shine a light on unencumbered pricing. And what I mean by unencumbered pricing is not just that you're not making money on fulfillment, but you don't manipulate prices. You're not setting the price. You know, a third party is giving the benchmark, and the pharmacy has the choice of either meeting that benchmark, in our case, we use NADAC, or offering a cheaper price. So there are pharmacy chains, including independents, that offer great deals at cash price for hundreds and hundreds of drugs. And so let the buy side, the patient in the plan and the sell side, the pharmacy freely communicate on price. That's how every other efficient market operates in the United States, except for prescriptions. Edgy, I want to shift to talk about health plan prescription drug transparency. The Biden administration has issued an interim final rule that requires private insurers to report prescription drug costs to the federal government. And the interim rule is the latest in a series of regulations implementing provisions of the No Surprises Act and the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021. Each year, insurers will be asked to provide information such as the 50 most frequently dispensed brand drugs, 
the 50 costliest drugs based on total spending, and the 50 drugs with the largest increase in plan or coverage expenditures year over year. Insurers will also be required to submit data on rebates, fees, and other remuneration paid by drug companies to the plan in each therapeutic class, as well as the 25 products that yielded the highest amount of rebates. Are you optimistic or hopeful that these provisions of the No Surprises Act will eventually lead health plans to disclose detailed plan pharmacy and claims cost data? I am optimistic. Our company is already prepared for these reporting, and it makes it easier, obviously, because I go back to our single ledger. I find it interesting because there is some chatter in industry about interpretations like, well, is it an average? Is it the contracted rate versus the actual rate that if you read the provisions, it is asking for drug level label name detail, which would suggest NDC 9 or NDC 11 classification, which is very detailed and variable payment. So drug A provided a rebate of $2,500, drug B provided a rebate of $3,600. And what percent of that off of wholesale acquisition cost is important and things like that. So there's a variety of things that I believe we need to provide that could be beneficial. And I am optimistic about this ruling. I just hope we don't kick the can down the road, which does happen sometimes, where you know I think the federal government says, I got so much going on, I just can't get a final ruling out on this. I'm not quite sure how this works. So I am optimistic because it appears as if so far, things are on track to stay put. And I believe, obviously, it's not just putting data in a box. It's what happens with that data. And I would like to say on some level, I believe the federal government should already know some of this, but I think it's what does the federal government want to do with this information? And, and you know, and let me give you an example. So they say, okay, I'm seeing this data on a client level, client by client. Are all the clients getting the same number? Well, that's not true because if you were to look at their rebate contracts, they're all different. So when they see that they're different rebate payments, Someone would say, well, it's a drug mix and this, that, and the other, perhaps. But when you see a disparity, that's how many quartiles of difference, that's when I think some alarm bells should be sounding. I think the first part is helpful just to have the data. The second part of it is what happens and how is that data used to improve a more equitable prescription drug system? Well, AJ, as we think about having an equitable uh, drug distribution system and impacting patient outcomes and and obviously you know addressing the spend it's like really an opportunity for a great rethink in the way we're doing things and i'm interested in this concept of how an innovative pbm like capital rx can get closer to the premium dollar by becoming their own risk bearing entity i mean it seems like we could somehow figure out a way to conceptualize a PBM RBE model that aligns with the financial and clinical outcomes that are paramount to value-based care. I mean, how else can we expect other PBMs to make good decisions if they make more, more money doing the wrong thing? So are, are there any opportunities out there to realign incentives by creating risk-bearing entities like this, similar to ACOs, where, where PBMs can participate in gain-sharing opportunities by lowering drug spending and taking on full PMPM risk? Well, I think there's two steps. So I try all the time in bids with brokers and consultants to be like, why are you making this so complex? Just give us what the last two years was the PMPM, the per member per month cost for the prescription plan, and I need the claims data, and ask people to bid back on a PMPM basis. And what's fascinating is the brokers and consultants be like, you can't do that. And I'd be like, "What? I'm willing to do it. What do you mean you can't do it? And they'll be like, well, you can't do it because the big three won't do it. And I'm like, well, who really cares? Then I guess they don't bid. And they're like, no, I have to have them if they're not here. So I go back to some of the conflicts of interest combined with, unfortunately, people 
don't want to upset the big three because they're like, hey, I, I have to have these three people bid or I'm going to get in trouble or I might make someone angry because there's compensation tied to these things. And so I'd like to point out where I'm not alone in this. There are plenty of organizations that would like to. And then what happens is the compromise. And this stinks, Eric and Dan, because what happens is someone like ourselves in a transparent model will be like, hey, look, I'm willing to put my fees at risk or to put a corridor or rapid and stop loss to basically demonstrate that I'm fully aligned and willing to take risk on the number I'm putting down. But what I point out all the time is the only person at risk is on a PVM self-insured deal is the payer. And, it, and it's fascinating to me because what's happening here is we will bid something that's fully transparent and is putting real risk and it has a set number for, you know, it's very easy to do a bid and say, well, here's the rule set and their bid is 82 PM PM and yours is 86. I'm going to go with the 82. But what's happening here is we'll bid in that way. And then the traditional PBMs will bid some fictitious numbers because I often point out, you know, the average PBM contract is 5,200 pages long and there's not a single drug price in it. So how could you ever understand what's going on? And the answer is you can't. And so if you could, the broker consultant would bear the risk. You know, they would be running the RFP and say, hey, uh, I'll take the risk dollar for dollar. No way. And my point here is what they do is they give a pass. They'll be like, well, theoretically, the other PBMs are going to uh, save 20, 30%. And we're going to go with that because when I convert that to a PMPM, it's $70. Now, I often say, speak to an actuary about the bid and the actuary is doing an actuarial assessment is going to say it's plus 5%, plus 7% trend. There's not an actuary alive is going to look at a self-insured commercial plan and be like, I'm going to take the risk and it's going to go down. In addition, if you were to look at stop loss, you know, to wrap something, typically attachment points are 10% as a minimum. And so what I want everyone to understand here is there are organizations today that are willing to take that step with partners. And oftentimes it's blocked because the incumbents or traditional entities don't want to bid that way. And what happens? Innovation gets shut down. Now, thankfully, there are open-minded groups and open-minded payers that are beginning to understand these points because when you go through, they're quite logical that they're saying, hey, I want to move in this direction. I could care less as long as the entities are aligned. AJ, I really appreciate that explanation and want to go a little bit further into how you're competing with other PBMs. And on average, I know Capital RX saves its clients 27% on drug costs, mainly by refusing to use that industry standard model for drug costs, which is the average wholesale price. And I think a reckoning is coming to the PBM industry and it's not enough to compete entirely on lower prices. The beauty of your model at Capital RX is not just lower pricing and transparency, but you have a consumer-centric model that boasts an industry-leading net promoter score of 92, as you referenced earlier. And that's really amazing and far outpaces the healthcare industry average of 15. And in fact, it's actually 20 points higher than Apple, which is kind of this gold standard of customer satisfaction. Instead of Capital RX competing with other PBMs just on prices, how can it also beat them? on clinical management and overall value? And, and how does Capital Rx achieve such a high NPS? Yeah, I think it comes back to, again, alignment, which is if you are aligned economically, and, and I point this out, is that our organization can't make money on fulfillment. We can't make money on drugs. I don't care if it's rebate or the network. So we just get a flat fee. And our job for that flat fee, we are entrusted with providing sound advice for the member and the plan. And so it begins with alignment. Anyone who's making money on spread, there's misalignment. There's a conflict of interest for all the points that we've discussed today. And so it begins with that. The second layer is efficiency. So through this model, we don't waste any time manufacturing price and manipulating drug price. There are entire teams of people in traditional PBMs that are setting MAC lists and managing clawbacks and things like that. We don't have any of that. Where we focus is where we're a customer-centric organization. So we want to expend our resources on better reporting, better insights, better client integration, better patient management, better clinical insights. And so this is where we invest our time. 
that in order to deliver on these promises of pricing and clinical oversight, you have to build your own technology from the ground up. The systems that my competitors are using are 20, 30 years old. They're written in COBOL. They're old school on-premise racking and cabling. They're completely inflexible. They can barely manage today's benefit, let alone what tomorrow will bring. And so that's the advantage that we have as well. We have wonderful people in our organization, many of which are hired from existing carriers and PBMs, but we deliver a better product because we're fully aligned. And that starts with pricing and clinical management, but we deliver it on a platform that's incredibly efficient. And you know, a great point of this is first call resolution in our call center sits at 97% now. That is amazing for a call center. That means no one's calling me back, basically. We're solving that problem first time. And so that leads to a better patient experience, which rolls up to a better client experience, which leads to a better net promoter score, both in the call center for the patient, as well as with the customer. But we want to also focus on it is we're not wasting anyone's time and efficiency is money. And so I can offer a lower priced product for a higher quality service. And again, all of this leads to good. So our tech stack is Judy. Judy is short for adjudication. And she's our brains of our organization. She's the secret weapon of our organization. I point this out. Everything in our company runs on Judy. This isn't just about claim processing and plan setup. This is about underwriting. This is about implementation. This is about we wrote our own PA workflow and formulary management. We talk about our own data integration and patient tool sets. We talk about third-party data integration and data exchange. We talk about everything from network management, reimbursement, billing, print fulfillment, all of these tasks run on Judy. And why? If something is broken, we all can see it in real time. You know, I hire people from other carriers and they often say to me, you know what I love about your company? I have one login. My old company had 12 for clinical systems, payment systems, call center systems. We don't have that here. And I keep going back to be patient focused, be aligned in your economic model and magical things will happen. And, you know, some of the things that I'm most proud of in our organization is, yes, the net promoter score is a great reflection is our average trend for our entire book of business from last year was negative nine. And this year it's trending in the same direction again. And this is important. Because I said it earlier, if you are passing through all the economic incentive that you can find in the supply chain, so that means as close as you can get to acquisition cost unencumbered, as close as you can get to rebates unencumbered and couponing and every other program, drug pricing gross to net is negative. Add in a healthy layer of clinical oversight you're going to have a third less new starts, a third less recurrence on high cost therapies and have a better patient experience. And this is again, gonna to lead to lower costs. The other part of this that we're, you know, we wanna lean into, you're talking about the future is what we're talking about is, is the patient getting better? Is the patient responding? So we have an entire platform called our human capital reporting system that integrates both medical and pharmacy claim data to help our payers understand especially specific therapeutic categories and conditions, what is going on with that population in total costs, not just on prescriptions. The other area that we focus on that makes Judy, our system very unique, is we're prepared for the future, which is what I think is moving to precision medicine. I just think it's a shame that we operate in a system where we start with an assumption that everyone behaves the same way. Like it's a one size fits all formulary. Everybody responds the same. And really what it should be is taking a look at how someone should respond to medication. And this includes both genetic testing as well as patient records integration to really think about what's the formulary for AJ? What's the formulary for Eric and Dan? We're all different. And that's the future. And in order to do that, you have to have an adjudication platform or processing system that can manage a formulary at the patient level. Most systems terminate at the group level. So you can only contemplate a formulary for a group or some sort of population. But one of the things that we wanted to do with Judy, talk about looking over the horizon and what the future shall bring is this concept of obviously individual formularies, precision medicine. And that's what gets me excited is 
putting all of these pieces together, but it starts with alignment and it begins and ends with being that customer-centric organization. Well, AJ, it's such a great story and there's outstanding work that you're doing there at Capital RX and the magic really is happening. Um, we're excited to have the opportunity to discuss that with you. And you just talked about on your last response at the very end, the need for consumer awareness around therapeutic classes of drugs and making informed decisions at that level and the whole precision medicine aspect and not treating all patients as, as one and the same. And it reminded me of this uh, another challenge in this in, in this dysfunctional pharmaceutical industry that we have, and that's the direct to consumer advertising of uh, pharma. America and New Zealand are the only countries that allow direct to consumer advertising, and that practice significantly affects the practice of medicine and how physicians are interacting with patients. And the fact of the matter is that the majority of drugs fail for most people, but we seem to act like that's not true because we've bought into that advertising propaganda. So I wanted to just ask you, AJ, what do you think about this direct-to-consumer advertising? I mean, has this contributed to maybe a, a misunderstanding of prescription drug efficacy in our country, whereby creating more of a tolerance for higher costs? For me, I think it's approached the wrong way. Like I think information, I think any patient appreciates, but when you make it look like, I don't know, like a music video at a celebration, <laughs> and it's like happy people smiling in sunshine, that's really not getting to the clinical data or any of the FDA studies that may obviously support the use of the drug. So I want to make a point is the format I don't think is right because it's like a game show. <laughs> it's kind of light on quality with a lot of smiles. I think that it misses the mark where it can effectively communicate with a patient if you have a condition that this could be a therapy for you. But here's the information that makes sense or means something to you. And I feel like that's what's kind of missing in some of these television ads. Perhaps it was kind of more fun when it was something like erectile dysfunction and everybody was just smiling and laughing about it. But I think we have some extremely more serious conditions that are being advertised on air. And I think it's still using kind of the same format as erectile dysfunction. And I don't think that's appropriate. Well, AJ, uh, this has been such an awesome conversation. And as we wrap things up, I'd love to get your parting thoughts on the transformation of the industry towards this whole value transformation. And you can't really improve what you don't understand. And you clearly have a grasp on the challenges impacting prescription drug spending. In addition to understanding, we also need collaboration to drive shared knowledge. And we need businesses that are not content in having a traditional mindset. They're not content with the status quo, that they want to work together to make something better. As a leader in the value movement, how do you think we can reach consensus that value-based care is our only future? As an innovative upstart company focused on a future where value reigns supreme, how is Capital RX building a use case for disruption that others can follow? Well, I think in order to get to value-based cares, touching upon the points we've mentioned throughout this discussion, which is back to that alignment, not making money by marking up drugs, not having that conflict of interest. I, I think that's the only way you can be entrusted to provide the data and to help create the appropriate measurement for the outcomes and the value-based care that all needs to be coordinated and come together. So I think what we're doing is creating a pure model that goes back to where healthcare began, which is let's focus on what's right for the patient and the plan sponsor. Let's gain alignment and think through what are the best ways to understand is a patient getting better or are they managing their condition appropriately? And I think that also looking at the cost to manage this condition, you know, and it's complete total cost of care. One of the things that we talk about quite a bit in our break room sometimes is there's a higher power here, which is obviously it's the cost of drugs, it's the cost of medication, but it's also the payroll of this person as well. And when you have medications, let's just say if the average household income in the United States is $62,000 for a second, if you have medications that are a quarter million dollars, 
how do you begin to understand value there? And I want to be fair is if it's a cure or it's transformative to that person's life, then that's, an, that's a wonderful case study to present. But if it's a marginal improvement or none at all, what is the point of maintaining that medication? And again, it goes back to alignment. It goes back to having a fair assessment. And the person that is making that assessment is obviously someone, again, who is unbiased and is looking out for that patient implant. I've learned so much, AJ, in this conversation. I can't thank you enough for being on the podcast this week. It's really been a pleasure and uh, spending time with you. And thank you for sharing all of your insights with our listeners and really being a leader in this movement to value-based care. It's an incredible service that you're providing to improve healthcare delivery in our country. Thank you for having me, Eric and Dan, and thank you for letting me tell the Capital Eric story and give you a little bit more insight to the crazy world of the pharmaceutical supply chain. It's a pleasure, AJ. Do you want to share with our listeners any information of how they can find more about you and connect with you? Certainly. So if you wanted to go to capitalrx.com, that's our website. In addition, we are on LinkedIn, as well as Facebook and Twitter. Uh, obviously, feel free to uh, visit our website. If you wanted to send me a direct email as well, you could send it to info at cap-rx.com. And obviously, you could address it to me or just in general, the company, and we're happy to respond.